Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. About um, 30 years ago, uh, David and I uh, used to uh, imagine that um, sometime in the distant future would be uh, silver-haired old gits. Um, <laughs> you, but presenting a kind of cosy fireside TV broadcast where we talk about the glory days of the early 1970s and the great records that were made. We'd eat crumpets and we'd drink tea. It was going to be called the Earl Grey Whistle Test. Hilarious. <laughs> But anyway, it's this prophecy—it's still prophecy is quite good. Joke. Good joke. This prophecy has now come true because Dave has written this stupendous book about 1971. Can we have yes, an enormous Islington-shaped round of applause for the author? There it is. There's the cover. What a great cover, too. What, what, taken at Chateau Nelcott yes. in the south of France. While you're talking about the Earl Grey whistle test, when they did the whistle test, best of the whistle test on DVD. They got all the former presenters and interviewed them one by one. Annie Nightingale and Bob Harris and so forth. Apart from you and me. We were done at your house next to a crackling log fire. And that only confirmed the view of anybody who thought we were an elderly gay couple. There they are. They're still living together. Remember how Eric and Ernie used to share a bed? I think they thought this was the same with me and Dave. It was, it was all That's, That put the tin lid on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, this book, Dave, when we, were, when we were at Word magazine, you had this theory, and you wrote a column about it, that 1971 was the Annus Mirabilis. There's, incidentally, there's the terrific structure to Dave's book. It has a prologue, and then it's got the book itself, and it's got the epilogue. And the prologue says, I think you'll find that 1971 is... A, and then there's 350 pages of concrete proof. And then there's a, an epilogue which said, told you so. so. As Dave said, it's not a... You know, it's not a discussion, it's a statement of fact. <laughs> he is right that 1971 is the best year. But anyway... Well, so that's, that's, it sort of starts with the, uh, you know, the way we used to talk about pop music on, on you know, Word and Q and Smash Hits and so forth. We always talked about it in this kind of fake categorical terms, didn't we? We used to say, the greatest record ever made is... And the other person would go, don't tell me, I know this one. <laughs> I know, it's on the tip of my tongue. I know the answer. And then if somebody else came up with an opposing answer, you'd say... 
I think you'll find you're wrong. Yeah. If you go back and check your working out, yeah. you've obviously missed a line somewhere because the greatest record I've ever made is Santa. So this kind of started in that spirit, you know, that um, I wrote a column, as you say, called, and it was the Annus Mirabilis of the rock album was 1971, which was one of those, um, you know, visions <laughs> delivered to me by... By the internet, really, you know. Because once you've got 50 or 60 years of rock history and you've got the internet, what you can see is patterns very, very easily. You know, because everything, you can, you can sort stuff by date and by who did it and whatever. And you start to see a kind of long wave here. You start to see the, the years that were hot spots and the years that were, that were less so. And so... I, you know, so I wrote this column and it was basically saying that, well, you know, look at all the extraordinary albums that came out in 1971. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, Led Zeppelin Four, and so, and so forth. And, you know, millions of others. And, um, and I wanted to, to, to write a book to kind of ground that theory, to sort of move it from the column of speculation to the column of fact, you know. <laughs> so you simply look, at, look it up in future. Right? You can see, 1971, see David Hepworth. In fact. <laughs> fact. Uh, but the the other thing, which I've been thinking about a lot about recently, is that rock history, like the history of the first, the Second World War, the First World War, has obviously fallen or is falling out of living memory. It's so, not being written about by people who are, who are physically there at the time, right? So you know, most people who write about it come at it as I say, mojo first. You know that that, that and it, it's quite it's quite interesting because. I had this. I was talking to Pete Perfides the other day. I was on Soho Radio on his little program there, and um, and Pete said to me, he said the first time he heard John Lennon was in on just like starting over. And said, to me, it was like a bolt from the blue. You know, the idea that you'd know it only come across John Lennon that late in the day. And I was talking to Kate. I was talking to Kate Mossman about similar things. She said, well, first time I heard Paul McCartney was you know some kind of obscure later single or something, yeah. you know. And that, that's the future of popular music, that, that um, you know, were written by people after the event. Whereas, as I bore people by saying, I was born in 1950, so I have the winning ticket in the lottery of life in terms of pop music, because I just about remember Elvis Presley before he went in the army. I was 13 when the Beatles came along. I was 15 when Bob Dylan, Michael, Michael Rowan Stone. I was 19 at the time of Woodstock. You know, I was, I was, I was still capable of independent movement in, in 1976 when punk came along. You know, and so, and so all these things have kind of occurred to me as events. You know, so I can remember the time. And what I wanted to do was write a book that not only gave, gave some kind of um, uh, celebrated this extraordinary work, the extraordinary year, but also just gave an idea of the of the world that of that year. You know what things were like. Well, we're we're going to get to the um, the kind of social history element of it, about the fabric of, of of 1971. But I mean, this is just some of the records that came out, which is just phenomenal. Really, who's <laughs> next? Uh, what's going on with Marvin Gaye? Ram by Paul McCartney, literally a fact. Another fact: the best uh, solo album he ever made. <laughs> Van Morrison, Tupelo Honey, uh, Cat Stevens, uh, Teaser of the Fire, Carol King's Tapestry. But I mean, there, I mean, there are obviously the records there that were very big deal at the time, but there are also records there that were not a big deal at the time, but has subsequently become. Yeah. 
a big deal. Brighter later by Nick Drake. And brighter later. Nobody Nick Drake. bought that at the Nobody time. Nobody bought. Gil Scott Heron, you know, pieces of a man. The record with the Revolution will not be televised on it. You you're know, not allowed Shug- into university now, are you? Unless you've got a copy of you've Brighter got, Later. You've got to write an. You've got to write, write an essay about the Revolution pieces. will not be televised and and have a copy of Brighter Later before they let you go to university nowadays. But Shuggy Otis, Freedom Flight, and so forth. You know, Judy so, Still. Judy Sill, you know, all these records sold in minus quantities. But they all all came out that year. I've obviously cheated by putting a Neil Young live album down at the bottom right there because that was recorded in 1971 but didn't come out until a few years ago. and, and, and just heading off the complaints here. <laughs> heading Are you off terrified the... that someone's going to find something in this book that yeah, didn't because... come out in 1971? I think you'll find. I think you'll find. <laughs> <laughs> so Velvet Underground's Loaded came out in the United States in late 1970, came out in the UK in 1971. You know, there's, lots of, there's lots of stuff like that. But it's, it's, it belongs to this kind of white-hot period of, uh, of creativity. And these are just whatever they are, 40... 40 album covers. You could have done it. You could have done that slide, you know, yep. two or three times. Um, what have but, we got next? Hang on a second. So, yeah, that, oh, that's... This, this, Paul Denoyer, who we used to work with at Word, always said it was a rather good point. That she said that he didn't want rock music to change his life. He wanted it to change his appearance. And uh, this is what happened with David. But there you go. On there the right go. here. So, a feral creature. I was born in 1950. I think Clement Attlee was probably the Prime Minister. And, uh, and, you know, that's what your mother wanted you to look like when you were born in 1950, and that's what I looked like about 1955 or 56 or whatever. If my mother could have foreseen that that was what I was going to look like when I was 21 years you know, we we would have emigrated or something. You know, she would have t- <laughs> she would have taken evasive action. You know, in, in your head, who did you imagine you were in that picture? I, I uh, Robert Palmer, Andrew Gold. No, no, no. that's low. That's low, isn't it? A- Andrew Gold no. was not known to anybody. No, he was I probably I think I had low expectations. Actually, I probably fancied myself as Greg Ridley out of Humble Pie. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's very good. There you yeah. go. Yeah, formerly a spooky Massive tooth. Respect. But, you know, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, so there I am at 21, and, uh, you know, and I look at my own children, you know, they've all kind of gone through this, this stage of life since, and looked at the, at the great lengths that they had to go to in order to look, you know, of the time, in order to have the look of the time. You know, they had to buy the right jeans or, you know, go and have an expensive haircut and all this stuff. You all we had to do in those days, nothing. Do fuck all. Yeah, just. <laughs> and that's what you look like. Just simply stop Sheer washing neglect. your hair. Stop shaving. Simple stop doing neglect. anything. Simple neglect. <laughs> you look like that when you were twenty-one. The same thing doesn't apply when you're fifty-five. You know, but no. you know, at that age. So you know, and um, you know, all I was interested in doing at that age. You know, Jerry Seinfeld has a thing that he says that. When he was six years old, he only had one thought in his head. Get candy, get candy, get candy. And I just had one thought. Get records, get records, get records. That was the only thing I was interested in. You worked on the bins, didn't you? You worked on the bins, emptying the dust. I worked on... I worked at, yeah, that picture was taken when I was working on the, on the bins for Harringay Council. Uh, summer job. Fine job, fine body of men. Weren't ever words said against them. Worked very hard. We used to get very well paid. I used to spend all my money on records. 
But going back to the time... Yeah, this is just... We just put it in a couple of slides to remind you what it was like. And this was the year, unless I'm mistaken, when, when no smoking carriages came in and no smoking compartments in cinemas and in planes... Does anyone else old enough to remember that? You'd be sitting in the no-smoking bit. But the road behind you and the tent behind that were smoking sections. You're in an aeroplane. This was unbelievable. I contend the year 1971 was peak smoking. I don't think it ever got any higher than that. And you you can see here the last uh, TV commercial for for a cigarette on American television was on New Year's Day, 1971, on the Johnny Carson show. And it was an ad for uh, these cigarettes, which were uh, a brand aimed at, at liberated women. You know, the idea, you've come a long way, baby, so, you know, kill yourself yeah. with... Kill yourself with, <laughs> with style. With smoke, you know. Yeah. But smoking was just... Everything reeked of smoke, you know. Absolutely everything, you know. The litter, there was litter everywhere. Yeah, well, All the buildings were yeah. black. And uh, this, this is another bit. There's a lovely line where Dave, in his first, first uh, chapter, is trying to set the scene. He says, Bernie in. He says, steak and chips, roll and butter, uh, apple pie and cream, butter, butter mushrooms, mushrooms, 80p. And uh, I can still remember that. And so that's See, the kind of world we're talking it's about. Quite How much were records then? Two, two, two pounds no? 15. Yeah. Uh, because it's just, it's, it's decimal happens in February, you know, so it goes to 215. And um, I think it's interesting to reflect, you know, that nowadays, you can go down the end of your road and kind of, for the evening, you can kind of fool yourself to, your, to, to think that you're living the good life. You know what I mean? You can have a fabulous Italian meal or a Thai meal or whatever. You, know, you can indulge yourself. That was all there was in 1971. Yeah. You know, you went to the Chateau in West Bridgeford to the new Victorian wine steak dine. bar. Wine, dine and dance for a pound. For a pound. As late as one o'clock in the morning, we, we were yeah. happy, and uh, and that was the that was the you know you didn't have craft beers or anything. There were excellent places like this. That was it. Watney's Red Barrel. That's what fuel party along with your coffee, brown sugar thing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's what record shops look like, and you used to go into record shops just to physically be near record shops. I think it's really important you to say. afford them, you just went in to just look at them. I could afford. Them. I could afford them occasionally, but the only thing I wanted to do. You know that we we my, my you know girlfriend then now wife you know we we'd go to visit somebody somewhere else in the country and she'd want to go shopping. I, all I want to do is uh, find me a record shop and leave, leave me there. for a few hours and I will be perfectly happy. And uh, you know because I went, will you listen to things? No, I won't listen to that. I just read the covers. Yeah. So you know I Memorize knew. It's a, I I. I you know, with records in 1971, you read about them first before you, you, you read them. You know, you read the actual covers. And you knew the track listing, you knew the musicians, you knew the producers. If you were really boring like me, you knew the engineers as well. If you were Tracy tragic, Thorne is already looking at her watch, by the way. She's a long way out of here. <laughs> I could even name the, you know, the, the companies that printed the sleeves of these, books, of these things. Shore Pack and, you know... All, the, all this kind of... There's, gonna, other, there's other people who, you know, with a similar reflection. I should have brought in some, uh, you know, some sleeve notes from, uh, from Skin Alley's two-quid deal or whatever and <laughs> tested you to see if you recognised it. <laughs> but getting on to some of the people who made records, uh, you make a really good point in the book. This was the year that the Beatles had broken up. They broke up, in fact, on Christmas, on New Year's, New Year's Eve, Eve, 1970. Yeah. The moment, as you say, that pop music kind of ended and rock music began. It's perfect, actually. 
although it'd been better for been a year beforehand. But they break yeah. up, and this leaves a vacuum for all these other people to have an opportunity now There's, to sell records and get some press, because the, the Beatles no longer... There, there was definitely a feeling within the music business that there was a vacant crown to be had, you yeah. know, that, that, that you no longer had kind of... You didn't have Barcelona to compete with this year, yeah. you know, there was... It was it was going to be a lot easier, and uh, three of them produced solo albums. Well, absolutely, and the, and the three of the acts who rushed into that gap most conspicuously were former members of the Beatles, and so you know Paul McCartney puts out Ram uh, later in the same year. John Lennon puts out uh, Imagine, which contains that picture of him spoofing the prose that Paul McCartney adopts on the cover of Ram. And I do think it's staggering, you know, because I think, you know, pop stars have always been bitchy about each other. They're a poorly competitive breed. And, and there are people nowadays who would still like to do that kind of thing to each other. I'm sure members would take that or whatever, would like to do that. But somebody would stop them yeah. nowadays. Wiser somebody councils just... would prevail. In 1971, there were no, no wiser cats. Well, also, they didn't dare tell John Lennon what to they do. Didn't, didn't they? He just yeah. did yeah. what he felt yeah. like doing. And, um, and then you had the, the big sound of the first bit of 1971, the ubiquitous sound you know, from being whistled by every decorator up a ladder or every lorry driver or you know, Jimmy Young on Radio 2 or whatever it was in those days. Um, was George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, which is extraordinary to think that this is... A, this Old is ladies in buskies singing Hare Krishna. Absolutely. People, yeah. you know, the women used to work, work with my father at a small firm and he, in the north of England, and he used to he employed three women who, frankly, they dressed, they looked like characters from a Gracie Fields film, you know, <laughs> had, had shawls and so forth. And they'd, they'd be at the riddles going, Hare Krishna. Hare, <laughs> Hare. Guru Rama, you know, all this. And uh, it, it was, you know, it was amazing how that completely entered the bloodstream, you know, that, that record. Of course, only later in the year did George get the, uh, you know, on the old where there's a hit, there's a writ principle. Did he get the, you know, the writ from uh, Bright Tunes, who were the owners of the He's So Fine, the Chiffons? At which point he said, oh, I never knew I'd nicked it. Even though everybody had been telling him all the time he'd been doing it, that sounds like the chiffons, you know. And, uh, and there, there began a court case that was the kind of rock and roll equivalent of John Dice versus John Dice, uh, you know, that rumbled on for about 10 years, longer than 10 years. And, of course, the great punchline is when George Harrison eventually had to pay the money, all the money he made out of My Sweet Lord, he had to pay to the publisher of He's So Fine. Who did he find out? Has bought the publisher? Have you so fine? It was Alan, Alan Klein. Klein. That's Alan Klein who bought the rest of the Beatles already. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Frying pan but fire. The other but thing the, that, that he does there is the, the concept of Bangladesh, which is the first of August, nineteen seventy-one, first rock and roll charity show. Very much sets the template for everything that, that you know that uh, every charity show that's happened ever since. Uh, and for the first time, you get this reverential recapitulation recapitulation of old tunes, you know what I mean? That's true, because Dylan went on and played Hard Rain's Going to Fall, I think, of just uh, old songs he'd written six years ago. Which, and, and that never normally happened. When you saw happen. people, they played their new they material. They played the new stuff. 
And also, Dylan had his harmonica and his denim jacket and, That's... and, and had gone back to the folk prophet that, was the key that point. he once was. I, I, I do think that Bob Dylan kind of styled himself, you know what I mean? I'm gonna, and the hair is going to be a bit more like, you know, blonde on blonde. I'm going to wear the denim jacket and the gob iron holder, and I'm going to do hard rain. And, of course, that look was also on the cover of more Bob Dylan's greatest hits, which yeah. came out that year, which is still his biggest selling record ever. Uh, Ringo, the only thing I say about Ringo, he was doing Blind Man, his spaghetti western. Uh, what he didn't know is when he was out there um, doing it in Spain, I think, I was emptying his bin. I was, you know, one day that We're was not selling the contents. On I didn't eBay sell years later. I didn't have the presence of mind to do an AJ Weberman and you know and uh, write a long piece for International Times about what was in Ringo's bin. What kind of pizzas? It didn't go in my didn't go in my mind at all. This but, is well, this is a fantastic section when David Bowie, who in this year, unless I'm mistaken, produced. This is how creative people were. The speed at which people operated. The man who sold uh, sold the world. Sorry, Man Who Felt Worth, what are we talking about? No, we, Man Who Sold the World. Man Who Sold the World, and also Hunky Dory, and also re- recorded all but one song of, uh, of um, Ziggy Stardust. I could have written the, right? you could write the whole book yeah. about David Bowie's 1971, yeah. because it's absolutely action-packed, <laughs> and he's, most of it is just staggering around in total confusion, doesn't know what to do. Yeah. You know, he's, he's had, you know, Space Oddity, and he's... He's writing loads of really good songs, which everybody agrees, his publisher agrees, you know, Rick Wakeman agrees. All the people who heard those songs that David Bowie wrote in 1971, Ken Scott, so forth, they still say to this day, that's the best bunch of songs I've ever heard from one artist in a short period of time ever. But he didn't have any huge success. So he, PR, the PR guy said this is going to be the Bob Dylan of the 1980s, well, didn't he? I mean, they, so well, R- RC, yeah, when he, go, he goes to America, so this is you know, early February in 1971, he goes to America, he has a, he, just a promo tour for Man Who Sold the World. He can't play in his shows. He's dossing on people's sofas, largely. And, um, but it's clearly, you know, for like everyone, I think probably still to this day, but certainly in those days... Your first trip to the United States just completely turns your head around. And I think it certainly did it for him. You know, his eyes were just on stalks for three weeks as he went. He went to Detroit. He went to New York. He went to Los Angeles. He hung about with Rodney Bingenheimer, the mayor of the Sunset Strip. You know, he, 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 um, it took a while to get through customs because he, he had a male gown in his, in his baggage, you know, which... I think Homeland Security was still, you know... <laughs> when asked by the melody maker why he had a, a, a girl's dress, he said, it's not a girl's dress, it's a man's dress. Yeah. It's a brilliant answer. So he, he, but he comes back with a you know, head full of the idea of... Uh, he's heard the Stooges and all these things. Uh, uh, but he comes back and records Hunky Dory, and as you say, he records all but one track yeah. of Ziggy's Dances and the Spiders from Mars in one year, which is incredible. It's absolutely and, astonishing. Uh, and he, oh, in, the, the in New York, he goes to see, um, he gets in to sh- see a Velvet Underground show at, I can't remember where it was, and, uh, and he gets backstage and uh, buttonholes the lead singer and kind of gushes about how excited he is to finally meet him. He's always been a fan all these years. And what he doesn't know is he's talking to Doug Yule because Lou Reed has left the Velvet Underground in disgust a few <laughs> months. Right. And I do think it's quite interesting. That what had happened with loads of those kind of those kind of punk acts, you know, that or people that influenced a lot of punk acts, Velvet Underground, Stooges, MC5, Flaming Groovies, 
they're all just, they kind of giving up. They tried. They'd done that kind of back to the roots thing. And it, it had failed, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and it was oddly enough, only through the patronage of David Bowie, who they thought was bigger in England than he was, they thought, oh, there's some interest over there. You know, so by the end of the year, Lou Reed is over in Britain, staying at the Inn on the Park, making his first solo album. And actually, you heard the, uh, a, a, a Velvet Underground record that wasn't released in England until three weeks well, later, which is yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So this is a slide of, of, of singer-songwriters. And um, this is, you made lots of really interesting points about, uh, about this whole movement. One is that television is what favours the singer-songwriter over the band. It's much easier to represent a single person, Cat Stevens or, or uh, James Taylor or, or Joni Mitchell, on a television set than it is taking a seven-piece band. And uh, to talk a, a bit about Carol King, because you know, it, it, it was the, the kind of purchasing power of women, wasn't it, largely, well, so that Carole changed King, the model of the... Carol King puts out, you know, she makes Tapestry, which is her second solo album, I think. And Lou Adler, who's her producer and runs a record company, has always loved her songs and used to represent her as a songwriter. And he used to circulate her demos to record companies. And he noticed that the record companies always hung on to the demos that Carole King made because they liked the way she sang. They just liked her voice. So Lou Adler always thought, there's something in this, you know. I'm going to make a very kind of stripped down, very simple, almost like a demo, you know, album with this woman. Sound and, of Young Islington. The sound of Young Islington. Yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and when, he, when they come in near completing it, Charlie Larkey, who is uh, Carol King's boyfriend and the bass player in the group, says to Lou Adler, he gets him in the corner, he says, what, what do you think of this record? He says, I think it'll be the love story of albums. And, and uh, you know, love story was the huge, you know, movie and, and, uh, and, and um, um, book you know, the deal of 1971. And of course, it's amazing. Nobody watches Love Story anymore, do they? I don't think anybody reads Love Story anymore. Do people still play Carole King's yeah. Tapestry? They are, certainly... are they buying tickets to her show, which they over this summer? Yes, and is she are. coming over this Mid- summer? You know? and, and these were all stills, interesting, from a guy, uh, uh, programs made by a guy called Stanley Dorfman, who's a British TV producer and director, who just made these very... Beautiful. It's the early days of colour, don't forget. You know, TV is just shifting from black and white to colour. And so he makes these, these very, um, you know, close-up, loving, you know, portraits of, of, the, of these people like Cat Stevens and, and Johnny Mitchell and James Taylor. And, of course, the other thing you, you've got to remember about these people is that they all slept with each other and they all wrote songs about it, which made them immeasurably more interesting, you know what I mean? So you didn't need gossip magazines, you know what I mean? Because it was pretty open and shut case who these things were about. Joni Mitchell went out with James Taylor. James, then, uh, with, uh, Joni uh, Mitchell with, with had Kat, just... Cat Stevens, Joni you? Mitchell had just come out uh, at the last the issue of Rolling Stone, the last issue of 1970. She is described as old lady of the year. <laughs> which I don't think she's forgiven to this day, and I wouldn't blame her. I wouldn't blame her at all. Cat Stevens... Um, has affairs with just about everybody, including Carly Simon, who writes anticipation about her first date with Cat Stevens, and I think also a legend in his own time about Cat Stevens. Uh, Carly Simon also has an affair with Chris Christopherson, which was effectively a legal condition that you had to have an affair yeah, with Chris. You didn't have an affair. 
bigger. You could have your colour. Well, because he was yeah. he was the sex bomb of the year. Yeah, you know, he was he was slightly older and he yeah. was a bit of a movie star there, through Cisco Pike. What was the song it, called? That he well, wrote all he wrote a song in case she didn't understand what he was saying. He wrote a song. He sat in front of her in a hotel room and wrote a song called "I Got to Have You." <laughs> you know. Unambiguous. Um, you know, so all of these people, you know, Neil Young was on on tour all the way through year, the year, right? And he's writing the songs that made Harvest would have been on Harvest that year, but it didn't come out till the following year. But did all, pretty much all the recording on the road. And this had things like you know, the needle and the damage done, and old man written about her, the the guy who worked on his ranch. You know, so they were they all had stories that that uh, you know lent themselves to decoding. <clears throat> which made these people fantastically interesting. I also, I also think one thing we very often overlook with these, these stars, these solar stars, is they were fabulous looking. You know, you, your eyes just wanted to rest upon yeah. them, you know? And this was not the result of any styling, you know what I mean? Nobody, nobody had done this contrived, you know? That's what they looked like when they were 25, 26 years old. And you also make a really good point, I think, that uh, the trick of a singer-songwriter is to appear shy and unknowable and mysterious. And yet, in order to do that, you have to have the ironclad confidence to be able to nail the attention of every single person in the room. And so people like that sold a lot of records. People like Nick Drake, who couldn't do the latter part of that, did not send a lot of records. No, no, Nick Drake's, you know, Bryce later comes out in March... Uh, it's delayed by the fact that there's a, a, a postal strike for two months. Two months. Yeah. No post whatsoever. Yeah. He does nothing whatsoever to promote it, apart from one small interview with Jerry Gilbert in Sounds, which is the sum total of his of media his marketing thrust <laughs> in his entire career, you know. And, uh, you know, later in the year, he recalls Pink Moon in two sessions, hands the tape in Island Records, disappears. Never does anything again, you know. But some of these other people were very you know, made of different stuff. There's <laughs> the, the Stones, well, there's a lovely picture of the Stones, uh, uh, Nelka on the cover of the, of the book, which is so brilliant. But there's two things you talk about. One is the whole business of them moving to the south of France, where Keith is allegedly picked up asleep off his sofa in Cheney yes. Walk, or it is. Cigarette still. Put a cigarette with ashtray, and, and, and deposited on the very same sofa with the same ashtray and the same light, the same lampshade, the same Indian scarf in the south of France, so it wouldn't kind of like, you know, give him a bad... Bad vibes, you know. And, uh, that anecdote has been through the Mark Ellen trip. <laughs> there is actually an app you can get that will do that. That will take your raw experience and will turn it into some fabulous. Turns the brightness up a bit. PG Woodhouse. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Thing. No, there's some truth. To that. Keith actually, as Keith appears in the back of this picture, mumbling darkly. Yeah, he thrilled to bits. Disapproved of. Delighted the... to be there, Keith. There's... Yeah, really um, pissed off. But in the book, you describe this as being the shabbiest of bun fights in the history of both rock and marriage. <laughs> so why, why did you say that? Why, why did you call it that? Well, because it, it it, it's just astonishing when you look back on it from the shores of 2016, the idea that what was then the biggest rock star in the world would set out to get married in a, in a public place would not send out the invitations till two days before to all these rock star mates who would all just turn up and get on the plane, you know, uh, stumble on, would all, would all just turn up. He had a total security con- contingent for the day of two people, 
okay? And what he didn't know was that if you get married in France, you have a civil ceremony, and you can have a religious one as well if you want. Civil ceremonies have to be public. You have to let people in. So Mick turns up for what he thinks is going to be a nice register office wedding, and he finds parry match photographers as far as the eye can see. And he says, I'm not going on with this, you know. And Les Perrin is his PR, says, I'm sorry, mate, you've got to, you know. So, you know, he gets married in front of them. And, uh, and this is, this is at the, uh, the, uh, the, the church wedding afterwards, you know. And by then, everybody's kind of had a belly full of the day, you know. Apart from Bianca is clearly kind of enjoying the attention there, you know. Yeah. Um, what nobody knows is she's three months pregnant at this point. What nobody has fully established is how many best men there were at that, at that wedding. Uh, Armit Ertikan, who's the, who's the boss of, you know, the, of Atlantic, which is their new record label, has clearly moved into the position where Joe Jagger, you know, the father of the groom, should, could reasonably have expected to yeah. be. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think it's, it's just an interesting shift with the Rolling Stones. Because, again, you go back to the point that I grew up with the Rolling Stones. So to me, the Rolling Stones are a great dance band. They're the groove he made satisfaction, and that's the year of Brown Sugar, which I still say is their last great single, and you know went to number one. And there were records that you used to put on at parties, and you know that place would just go yeah. mad. And this was their shift from being a dance band to being the big international attraction. And I think they spent the, re- the next 45 years very successfully exploiting their brand. This is when they became a kind of lifestyle concept, this, isn't they? They're living the life of a, of a hippie on the budget of a banker. Yes. You know? <laughs> and and this, is, this is where they got their own label. That's where you start getting the tongue and all that sort That's of right. stuff. It's also you get, the, you get the emergence of Keith as the kind of brand of the Rolling Stones. Who appeared on the cover of Rolling Stones. He's Stone appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah. That was the year he had his hair abbreviated you know, in rather yeah. savage fashion. And, uh, you know, people like Patti Smith, who was around at the time, looked at the haircut and said, I will base my entire career on that haircut. Yeah, yeah. And I would contend that's entirely what she's done. Yeah, it's very, very good. 45 years later, you know. There's another thing. Whenever I see pictures of Mick and Bianca, I always think of that comment that uh, Marion Faithful made, which is talking about what a narcissist uh, Mick Jagger was, to the extent that he married someone who looked identical to himself. He was effectively marrying himself. Yeah, yeah. And they were, they were absolutely indistinguishable. Yeah, 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 Extraordinary. And, uh, and may I point out, that's the last time Mick Jagger ever got married, even though this wasn't necessarily clear to some of the women that's that right. he married. Uh, there's a chapter where you talk about three people in particular. It's Cat Stevens and uh, Mark Bolan and Rod Stewart. You put them all together and talk about them as being uh, twinkling, old-fashioned entertainers. And they're all working class. And what were the other points that you made that well, they all had they were in common? All, they're really they were interesting. All London. And they're all going from the underground to the overground. They're all Londoners, yeah. and they'd all been kicking around for a little while. You know, they, Well, Cat Stevens had had some success, and then it kind of faded away. Rod Stewart had you know, been an admired voice. And, uh, and, you know, Mark Bolan was the simpering, you know, minstrel of Tyrannosaurus Rex. My people were fair and wear sky in there and all that. And, you know, never went anywhere without his own carpet to, you know, to, to right. sing on. And by the end of the year, you know, he's this thrusting, you know, pop sensation. Popping elf. And, uh, and the rest of the group, I, d- I want to show you this picture because... It's interesting just how far a group can move into the background on that picture. Yeah. <laughs> They've just been told Back to keep a bit, going. Boys. 
back a bit. Back a bit more. You know, yeah, it's still a band. You know, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And uh, and they they all kind of remodeled themselves in different ways, you know. And um, I think I think probably the one I'm oddly enough keenest on, and I've had a lot of comment on this actually, because you're not allowed to write like Rod Stewart. <laughs> but you know, see. And uh, <laughs> and you know, I find it from my That's memory. People are confusing who he is now to who he was then. Well, maybe, yeah. But from my memory, you know, Rod Stewart was the person in 1971 who most successfully moved into that Beatles vacuum. You know what I mean? That he was he was broadly popular. He was hip as well. But you could kind of understand what his songs were all about. You know, and of course, this yeah, is the Beatles. time when he's touring with the Faces. Uh, but he is becoming a bigger deal than the faces. And so the faces face a prospect of turning up for gigs here. You imagine how miffed they'd be. Yeah. You know, the one member of the band is absolutely Mount Rushmore size. You know. <laughs> the rest of you are barely there at all. And, uh, you know, because he's, he's becoming this big solo star. And you he know. was also the real complete package, wasn't he? Because there was yeah. a look and there was a sound, there was an attitude, yeah. there was a voice, you know, a whole fashion thing absolutely. connected to him. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a bit in the book, actually. Yeah, read, read? Oh, read a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I write about Rod's look. If you'll bear with me. He had a look as well. The younger Rod Stewart had followed the dress codes of first the beatniks and then the mods. But in the faces, he slowly adopted a style of his own, which was more than merely a set of clothes. It was a look that was widely followed. He dressed like a disreputable clerk out of Dickens. With his coxcomb of hair, his fair isle sweaters slightly too short, and his shoes unsuitable for heavy work. On stage, he planted the microphone stand like the spike on a pair of compasses, and looked out at the crowd with the impudent air of a pitch invader the authorities have been unable to eject. <laughs> the quality he seemed to value most in the faces was as if they stopped him doing just that. In their pictures, they were always tumbling, leaning on each other like a Wardian bucks who'd overindulged in strong waters, as they clearly had. Blue Nun, Guinness, Green Chartreuse... They liked their drinks like they liked most aspects of their life, lush and highly coloured. Now that the Rolling Stones had left the UK, the Faces were the only gang in town, and they were enjoying the role big style. At the end of July 1971, the Faces were playing in Long Beach, California, and the record company threw the inevitable party party for them. Dee Harrington was 21. And she was the kind of girl that only wealth and celebrity could have provided Rod Stewart with the chance to meet. The daughter of an RAF officer, she was well-bred totty. The sort that does something to boys like Rod Stewart. She claimed she was not familiar with his music. Although girls like this, hanging around the film business and picking up a little modelling work, are old enough souls to understand the power of not letting on that they have. She must have known that he had the means to show her a good time because he produced a model of the yellow Lamborghini Miura that he had at home, a move which was both gauche and worldly. She left the party with him. Within a month was installed in his house in Winchmore Hill. Not long after, he proposed marriage. She accepted. They never got around to it. She was Rod Starter Blonde. There would be many others. <laughs> 
was a great piece written by Clive James in The Observer in about 1978 describing Rod Stewart on stage. He used to wear these striped trousers. Do you remember that striped yeah. trousers? Very tight striped trousers. He said, he, he, said uh, he traversed the stage like a bifurcated marrow. <laughs> it's, a brilliant, it's a brilliant image. I never we, forgot it. It's fantastic. We all, we all give up in yeah. the face of Clive James, don't we? I know. Condom full of walnuts. That's exactly, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was God. Iggy Pop, wasn't it? So the live circuit, this is just so fascinating because um, you know, Led Zeppelin completely changed the model of touring, didn't they? They, 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 they had, did. They had an agent called Frank Barcelona, who I think uh, it, it, normally the promoter employed you to, to play their venue and generously gave you some money. But they'd said, we don't need a promoter. We, 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 we'll simply, we'll turn up and we'll allow you a percentage yeah. of the huge profit. So in America... Simply it, being in your venue. In America, they were, you know, he was doing this with The Who and you know, loads of a big, loud rock bands. And um, so they, they were playing on a far bigger scale in America than they were in Britain. Because don't forget, in Britain at this time, you couldn't play very big places. There weren't very big places. So Led Zeppelin do their Back to the Clubs tour in the, in the spring of 71, and they're taking in such venues as the Nottingham Boat Club there, you can see. Yeah. And at the same time, the Rolling, at the same time, the Rolling Stones are playing, you know, their, their kind of pre-tax exile tour. And they're playing Manchester, uh, um, Free Trade Hall possibly, University maybe. Leeds University, everybody plays Leeds University. And they were very often playing in front of acts sitting on the floor who were very quiet. You know, and if you listen to recordings at this time, you hear Robert Plant and so forth desperately trying to exhort people to get excited because they were naturally not excited. You know, being excited was something they subsequently learned from listening to live albums. Because it's true, the live albums educated people it, they how, to, how to respond. And so you start getting, in this year, you get Humble Pie performance, Rockin' the Film, where you get Emerson, Leighton Palmer, Pictures ex- Exhibition, you get Free Live. Bangladesh, I'd like to bring on a friend of us all, Mr. Bob Dillard. Yeah, four-way, st- four-way Street, yeah. you know, they, it's all about the audience noise. Yeah. You know? And that was, a lot of that was just educating the audience into how to behave. Uh, you know, similarly, you had, you, know, you had these extraordinary bills like, I don't know, there's £1.25 to Crystal Palace Garden Party, to Elton John, yes, Fairport and so forth. Pink Floyd played uh, Crystal Palace Garden Party that summer and decided that they were going to do something about the fact that, that they were pretty boring to look at by having an impl- inflatable octopus in the, in the lake. As you do. Like you do, <laughs> in the lake in front of the stage. And some of the more exuberant members of the crowd just uh, you know, got into the water and strangled the octopus. <laughs> so it sank down you know, during, uh, during, during the performance. But it's still possible in America for local acts. You know, people like Bruce Springsteen haven't made a record. But he's a very big deal locally in New Jersey. You know? And so he's, he's appearing almost in you know, equal billing yeah. with the Olmer yeah, brothers, brothers, who were absolutely huge in 1971. That was the, that was the peak of their time. And Frank Zappa sort of had an extraordinary week where, <laughs> starting in Montreux... If you think your week's bad, yeah. you know, compare it to Frank's yeah. week. This is, this is December 1971. They're playing at the Montreux Casino, and some, some wag decides to enliven the proceedings by throwing a fry, firecracker into the raffia that's hanging from the ceiling place goes up like a Roman candle. Miraculously, nobody's killed. Because yeah, really, it would have been the Bradford City fire of yeah. you know, rock and roll, and it would have changed a lot of things. Yeah. But, but everybody got out, and of course, we know the story. Deep Purple were, on, were across the lake looking at it, and they saw smoke on the water and wrote the song uh, based on it. And the, the mothers had had all their equipment you know, destroyed. They were fed up. And at the end of a long tour, they wanted to go home to California. And Frank said, no, stay. 
we've got these three gigs, four gigs, at the, at the new venue in London called The Rainbow, which has just opened. Pays quite well. We'll borrow equipment, we'll go and do this. So they, do, they duly go to London, they borrow the equipment and do it. And it's just about to go into the encores on the first night, on the early show, first night. Frankie's about to launch into I Want to Hold Your Hand when some nutcase appears from the side of the stage and kind of pretty much rugby tackles him off the edge of the stage, 12 feet down. Jealous of the fact that his girlfriend fancied Frank. She's hard to believe. So you say, that's a man with a thin skin, I would have thought. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You're looking at my bird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He goes 12 feet down on the concrete floor, and the the mothers just go to the edge. They think he's dead. Miraculously, he's not. You know, he's fine. And Frank goes and spends weeks in hospital and, you know... Never it, forgives the United Kingdom. Never forgives the United Kingdom to his dying day, yeah. you know. That, uh, but, you know, if there is any security at, uh, and safety at gigs nowadays, it's Frank, you know. You Frank's Frank broken Frank. bones were the price we paid for exactly. that. Oh, what have I done? I hit the wrong well, button. What have you done, Mark? I don't know. What do you think I did? Um, no, <laughs> right, I'm going to go... All the, uh, the little uh, things come up okay. on the left. Dave's slightly better at the internet than okay. I am. There we are. We're going back to the records. Now, what we're going to do, we'll have time for questions in a moment. We're going to end with... Um, these, again, are some of the records that came out. Dave has selected, out of these incredible uh, albums, the ten best records of the year. Because I knew you couldn't discuss, make your mind up yourself. Because he's going to tell you what they are. Again, it's not a discussion. Well, statement of fact. These things and down. he's also going to end with the best record in the best year ever. And yes. he's also going to end... Are we going to play the music? Can we do that? We can do it. When we, we get to play, the end, Terry, not yet, We're Terry. going to play um, 30 seconds, is, which is the best 30 seconds of the best yeah, track so you, you of the best complain that you're not getting in the value. best year ever. So gonna, this hopefully will build so into a, a tremendous... You know, edge of seat, climax of excitement. Yeah, tomorrow morning when friends say, what were you doing last night? I said, oh, they were droning on, but I learned what was the best 10 yes. seconds. David Hepworth told me. I'm so glad I didn't you know, know up any, to that point. Uh, any record. This is just taking a little while to build, um, but it's nearly there. You know, Judy Sill, you know, Pink Floyd medal, and uh, Bill with, of course, the great Bill Withers, just as I am. And then that Neil Young... Um, uh, the Massey, Massey Hall uh, line Dave, Dave had a little launch party the other night and Danny Baker came along and Danny Baker proudly went through every single one of these with me saying he had a first edition copy of all of them bar one. Was that right? It's absolutely astonishing. I don't yeah. know. I don't first know. edition. Here we so, go. Okay. So at, at number 10, here we go, is the Yes album. Oh, yes. yes. It's subjectivity run mad here. It's got no. a massive uh, Everybody. ripple of applause. Dave. Everyone agrees with you there. I don't care. Yes. Because everybody liked one prog group, yes? And I liked Yes. I loved Yes. And in 1971, they put out... And they're one of the many groups that put out two records in 1971. Uh, they put out Yes Album and Fragile. Early in the year, I went to see them play, play at uh, the LSC. And uh, they had a song on this record called Yours Is No Disgrace. You know this? It starts with a very distinctive... Da, 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 da which they used to you know, accompany with an extraordinary light show, you know, which we thought was so exciting. We went back to our flat in Turnpike Lane above the Leeds Permanent Building Society, and we used to put on the Yes album, and one person would be given the job of going to stand by the light switch. Yeah. <laughs> so that we made got, our own entertainment then. About, chick, chick, chick. We were happy. We, we, were, we were happy we in were those happy. days. So, you know, I'm going to... So gonna, that's at number 10. And number 9, yeah. we have absolutely sure. So, yes. yes. 
She said, you know, magnificent record. She said, you know, songs are like tattoos. She said, this, the, you know, this song, this record was like an X-ray. It wasn't, wasn't a record. You know, it was an X-ray. It was a completely her entire personal life but this laid was, out. This was a new thing, though, don't you think? That people, when you, I remember hearing this record. When I was however old I was, seventeen, I think, and and thinking that I knew who she was because yes. she was talking about actual relationships in her life. Yes. The last time I saw Richard, you know, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the, a case of you, you know, all those, you, you, you really felt you knew who she was. But, but, but of course we didn't, we didn't know that she smuggled the, the, you know, the most confessional song of the lot was Little Green, which was about the child she gave yeah, up like, for adoption. Like the Phil Lynott you know, exactly. Which nobody knew. Yeah. You know. So Rolling Stone review says, that was quite a pretty little tune, you know. It's amazing. One of the things, you go back and look at the reviews. They're, they're all kind of, was it right? They thought every year was I'm sure you like know this. Joni Mitchell gave away her child. So effectively, so she could have a career, actually, really. And was reunited with her child when her child came backstage to a concert in Canada. And she recognised her eyes and thought that must be the girl. And a year later, through various legal loops, they met up. Uh, by which time this girl had had a, a child herself. Yeah, yeah. So Joni Mitchell became a mother and a grandmother the same night. But Absolutely that's, extraordinary. The interesting, the point I do think worth remembering about, about Blue is that to this day... If a female singer-songwriter takes up a guitar in anger and goes and sits on a stool and records songs about, about her life, she knows that Joni Mitchell made Blue. Yeah. When Joni Mitchell made Blue, nobody had made Blue. Nobody had done it before, you know. And that's the kind of record that still resounds to this day, you know. Yeah, at number so, eight. Number well, your personal favourite. Absolutely it? fantastic. It's got Dear Boy on it. It's got um, Uncle Albert. It's got Monk Moon Delight, Heart of the Country. And it was a hit. Fantastic record. It was a big hit record. Brilliant pop symphony. And like, you know, lots of people to this day have still not heard it, you know, but it was, it's a fantastic record. It sounds just it's, as good today. It's the best Paul McCartney solo album, and it is, of course, the second best Beatles solo album. And the best one being... All things must pass. Obviously, again, ob- obviously. <laughs> Actually, every David Hepworth sentence should end with comma. Obviously, full stop. <laughs> I should lean across and slap you. That's right. What did I just there say? There you go. So, uh, uh, number whatever this. I don't know where we got to now. Six, uh, I seven. Don't know. Don't know. Uh, the here's my theory about Rolling Stones. Buy their album covers. Shall ye know them? Yes. Good album cover. Good album. Terrible album cover. Terrible album. They've had some terrible album covers <laughs> over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, you know, this, of course, was, you know, the first one on their own label. This was Brown Sugar. You know, this is Can't You Hear Me Knocking. It's also, I, I would hold, it's the record that gave the world alt-country, thanks to Dead Flowers and, you know, Wild Horses, that sound, you know. And, uh, you know, they, that was the last time that Rolling Stones went in the studio with a load of songs. After that, they start making Exile on Main Street later in the year. Uh, and, you know, the producer is heard moaning, you know, will anybody turn up with a bloody song, you know? Because it was just riffs after that, you know. So that's, that's Sticky Fingers. And uh, this is, well, obviously, yeah. So, you know, still... You the, know, the, record, the, the fantastic photo on the cover with the boat just turned up at her house. Yeah, you're going to... You're going to no have styling, the p- there's no makeup, there's no, no wardrobe full of possible things you can no, wear. You're going to have a picture taken for your album cover today, Carol. What are you going to put on? I'm going to put on this chunky old sweater. I'm going to put what I've actually got on. And what I've got yeah, on, yeah. basically. And um, we're going to get a cat in the picture. You know? yeah. And 
I still think to this day this has this record has an extraordinary warmth to it that uh, that you know she's never improved on, and I don't don't know if anybody's ever improved on. And of course, still running in the West End and on the Broadway and so forth. And I go along with my daughters, and they know these songs, you know, and they're born years after it happened. You know, they've, they've just entered the bloodstream. Natural Woman and Going Back and all these kind of things. So uh, of course, number whatever it is, five, I think. This is a great record. And Are it, we agreed? All right-thinking people must... This is a band at the... If you're only going to have one jam band in yeah. the world, you're going to have the Olman Brothers. Band. You know, don't, don't waste your time with the Grateful Dead. You know, it's, it's the Olman Brothers band. And uh, we, we have Tom Dowd to thank for this because he turns up in New York when they're in the, in the beginning of a three-night stand at the Fillmore East and they're due to record and he goes straight down there and he hears them play with a horn section made up of just mates they brought along with them. And he goes in the dressing room afterwards and said, get rid of that horn section. They don't know the tunes and they're out of tune. And so the Olmer brothers give them credit. They do. You know, they fire the horn section. And they go on to record the next four shows, which make that you know, extraordinary live album. Dwayne Olman dies later the year, the same year. I mean, done absolutely everything that anybody can expect anybody to do. Was he 24 years old? Yeah, and um, the bass player died almost immediately after. Sly and the Family Stone. Sly and the Family Stone. There's in, a, in the book you described that there would be hip hop would be unimaginable well, it, without the it, sound of this record. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that kind of thick, atmospheric kind of. Urban, the sound of urban anime, I suppose. And, um, you know, it's got loads of features in it that, that we now completely take for granted. It's got rhythm, got rhythm boxes on it, you know. And that was really unusual. I think there were only two records in 1971 that had those. And one was that. One was Family Affair, and the other was Call Me the Breeze by J.J. Cale, yeah. which don't seem to belong to the same family. Point I want to make about this. This is, a, if you go home and listen to this nowadays... This is still strange. This is still challenging. This was number one in the United States yeah. of America at yeah, Christmas in 1971. Yeah. This wasn't poked away on the indie chart. No. There wasn't one. There was one scene, and everybody took part in that scene, and that was the number one at Christmas, Sly and the Family Stand. If so, you imagine, I think, I think you make the point of the book, if not, you've certainly made it in the, on one of the radio programmes that I've heard. Have you anybody heard Dave on the radio or seen him on the television recently? Yeah, yes, po- possible yes to, they yawn. Impossible to, <laughs> to avoid him. But you made the point that had the Mercury Prize, a really good way of looking at it, had the Mercury Prize happened in 1971, it would have been Dory, Ram, Imagined by John Lennon. It would have been uh, uh, Bless the Weather by John. Led Zeppelin for, um, you know, Rod Stewart, Every Picture tells, tells a story. Phenomenal. You know, all records that we still know to this day. Yeah, all part of the fabric of now. That's still my favourite David Bowie record. because it's, Why is it your favourite? It's gauche. And it's kind of, it's not cool. I like it. It's before David Bowie got cool. Yeah. You know, he kind of, he didn't entirely know what he was doing. Yeah. You know, he was quite happy, right? You know, in that year, his only te- television appearance, I think I'm right in saying, was miming the piano part while Peter Noon sang Oh You Pretty Thing on top of the pops. So David Bowie was quite happy to be Elton John or, you know, if just get a start, you know. Publisher was really keen on him. He had a management company so who were really keen on him. He other had people. loads of support. Yeah. When this record comes out, Oh, you're pretty, uh, not Oh, you're uh, changes. It's Tony Blackburn's record of the week in the first week in 1972. And that's in the days when that meant something. That meant an awful lot of people were listening to it. 
but it wasn't a hit at all, you know. It's only with Ziggy Stardust, months later, that it starts having hits. But that's my personal favourite still. Uh, I think you know. we got to number two. This just reminded me, seeing this picture, that this record came out without any indications of who the group was yeah. or what the record was called. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it was any... It's completely inscrutable. ...information on they it supplied the, They supplied the symbols, I think, to Billboard to, to, right. to list it on yeah. the charts. You know, so you look on the it's chart, incredible. you just see four symbols. Um, <clears throat> I'm not the world's biggest Led Zeppelin fan, but I do think... I've heard loads of records ever since that have tried to be loud. You know, I think... Try, everybody tries to be loud. Sounding loud is a really, really hard thing to do. That sounds loud. It also bears out my pet theory that the one member of a group you can never replace is the drummer. And that's all about the drummer. You know, Jimmy Page is obviously fantastic. But John Bonham's drumming on that record, which was, you know, he performed on a drum kit, was stuck at the bottom of the stairwell at Headley Grange. Well, Andy Johns, the engineer, you know, poked a microphone, dangled a microphone, um, you know, down above it so that it would sound like, you know, the world's biggest drum kit and the world's biggest house. And it still does, you know. And you made uh, the point that, yes, Led Zeppelin could sort groups how to be loud and Rolling Stones taught them how to be re- rebellious and the Beatles encouraged them to write their own songs. Which for, is really for bad better or, For better or worse. <laughs> it's always a bad it's idea. It's really terrible. They always, they always have terrible... Before yeah. the Beatles, you expected someone to write a song yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, are we under... Are we, I think this is the big drum roll. I think yeah. we're now getting to number one. Yeah, the number one. And we're going to have a tiny yeah, yeah, little yeah, musical yeah, extract yeah, yeah, yeah. of it and here it is. Okay, well, at number that. one. All right, so the number Obviously... Who's next by uh, the who? I ask you to just bear, yeah, bear witness to one thing. Uh, do, the, the, yeah, four people, not yet, Terry. <laughs> the smoothest silk. Uh, you know, the, 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 four, the four members of the group are going to attempt to have a slash on a concrete post, you know, to put on the cover of their album, and nobody's going to stop them. And this wasn't shocking at all. You just looked at it, oh, fine. Apparently, they, they, they had performance anxiety on the day, and uh, so the, the liquid was, was supplied was water coming out of a film can. Uh, right, film yeah. can. Yeah. Uh, you know, this started out to be the Lifehouse project, another mad kind of potential rock opera, and Glyn Johns, God bless him, sat down with Pete Townsend and said, Pete, tell me the story of Lifehouse again. And Pete told him at great length, and Glyn said, I don't understand it. The band don't understand it. Let's do a single album instead. So that's what they did. And that single... And this comes to the point where... Uh, drawing your attention to what is the best bit of the best record of arguably the best year. It starts like this, Terry. So you all re- recognise this. It's the first track, Barbara O'Reilly... It's, I think it's a Lowry organ put through a synthesizer very painstakingly by Pete Townsend, one of his extraordinary demos. First time that anybody's used a, a synthesizer as a rhythm instrument, you know? Previously, it had always been used for kind of lyrical washers, you know? And this was, this was very much a departure. And they're prepared to let that run on its own for quite a while. And then I think they're joined by, by Nicky Hopkins, I think, there he is. No rubbish. And then playing the drums with headphones on, listening to the track, is the indescribable Keith Moon. So, you think full steam has been built up. 
No, 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 no. There's two things that are going to arrive simultaneously. One is the bass, and the other is the vocal. And that's the best moment, okay? That's, thank you very much, Terry, before we get sued. That's the best moment. If anybody wants to know what you learned tonight, the best moment <laughs> in rock and roll is one, pound, one minute 15 into Barbara O'Reilly by the Who. Where from the from bass and the vocal come Yeah, in. there you go. That's brilliant. What a, and what a childhood they, fantasy that was, really. Conducting the hoop. It was, wasn't it? Right, I, I, can we have good. some drums now, In the please? back room right, of a yeah. pub. Yeah, That's it's, brilliant. It's always to be my fantasy. So look, we're going to have some questions in a moment, but, 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 but last question for me is, is, could that ever happen again? Couldn't, could it? That, a year like that? You no. describe all those records as being warm and direct. And no, the, I don't think... Had you, a I don't think... I think there's loads of reasons in the product itself that it couldn't be done again because they were made in a certain way that they're having a meeting. They're made in a rush. They're yeah. made in a hurry. Made in a rush. But the real reason that year can never happen again is in 1971 there was nothing else. So when these records came out, all your focus, all your emotional energy went on these That's records. That's because cinema was sort of flat. So flat. It's pre-Godfather. You know, it's a few years. Comedy before Star Wars. Comedy was still your parents. There were three was, television channels. Baxter and uh, Eric and Ernie. <laughs> There were three television channels in Britain in 1971. And let me tell you, nothing on any of them, yeah? Yeah. There were five music weeklies. Yeah. That gives you an idea of how different culture was. Yeah. You know, nowadays, we just have millions of choices all the time. You know, this, this, you know, our attention is occupied by lots of things. What 1971 had was not just great music, but it also had great listeners. Because that's all they were doing. Yeah. And, and that won't come again, you yeah. know. And uh, it simply can't. I'm so sorry, kids. And people also weren't... The whole notion of being obsessed with the past hadn't really happened because the it present starts was so to, exciting. It's it not, starts, it starts it with starts Elvis, to, Elvis Presley, in fact. It, it starts... It starts to, <coughs> yeah, a package well, you, tour at the end of your book. You get the first Grease. Yeah. You get the first production of Grease. Yeah. You get... Well, I, read, I wrote in the book about Elvis. There's a big review of Elvis uh, did a big kind of arena show, which John Landau writes about... And he goes along, he's kind of faintly amused at the, at the kind of spectacle. You know, there's a huge band, they're kind of backing singers, there are special effects, there's pantomime, you know, there's, it's all very set piece, and there's nothing new. And, and what the show is all about is celebrating Elvisness. Elvis. Yeah, yes, it is. And it's really interesting review to read because he could be writing about anybody now. Yeah. If you go and see Britney Spears now, or anybody, that's what you're doing. It's her greatest it's, hits. It's the you're going of in. A, you're paying a fortune to be in a big room. Two new songs you don't want to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And uh, whereas th- then they were living in the now. Yeah. I think Bob Dylan, the last show of uh, you know, the last show of uh, 1971, he comes on stage with the band at the Academy of Music in New York, and then goes. He goes, well, we're going to play a song now that we haven't played for oh, five years. And he plays Like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. And it's like... you thought, The nostalgia market has begun. You've spent the rest yeah. of your life playing Like a Rolling Stone, Bob. Yeah. You know, as, as the market has yeah. got bigger and bigger, you know, as it's, uh, as it's all happened in the past, you know, then it was unusual. Well, these and many other theories are... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Are to be found in, James in the bar. And uh, yes, uh, we've got time for a couple of questions. Anyone's got any questions? Yes, you at the back there. Yeah. Yes, you've got me thinking of something that's in the 
Well, he appears at the concert from Bangladesh. There's a brilliant, there's a brilliant detail where Dave says he, is pay, he goes to the Bangladesh concert. I can't believe you got this past your lawyers, actually, because George Harris has prom- promised to pay him with his favourite New York heroine <laughs> if he turns up. To be fair to Eric Clapton, he's, he's said worse about himself than anybody yeah, has. else has ever yeah. said about It's Eric part Clapton, of recovery, you know, isn't it? So. Yeah. But, but also, it's the year of Layla, really, because that has come out at the end of 1970. You know, so that's, that's kind of big radio hit. We're gone. Oh yeah. Put out three because it's extraordinary situation. Well it's great, it's interesting. Black Sabbath put out Master of a Reality and when they take three weeks off to record it, their manager puts an ad in the Melody Maker saying, Sorry, Black Sabbath will be not on the road for the next few weeks while they make. Because you're wondering where they've gone. Because, because yeah, they're right. worried that they might go away. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. nobody was sitting there thinking, "Oh, they'll wait for yeah. me." You know, no, they weren't planning the year after next. No. You know, it was all completely Desperate in the to keep now. It going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Another question. Yes, you over there. Uh, well, I that sounds like your book. It's <laughs> a very I'll subjective t- question. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what. It's interesting to me, and I, I think I mentioned it in the book. So yeah, Glenn Johns comes off doing Who's Next, whereas pre- pre- clearly his job has been to say, it's finished, stop, there, it's done. Don't muck about with it. The next thing he goes on to do is the first album by the Eagles, and, uh, and which is David Geffen's project and so forth. And they may take it easy, which is clearly wonderful you know, and going to be a hit. And uh, they then, when having finished it, David Geffen desperately wants another Jackson Brown song to be sung by the other singer. And he makes Glyn Johns, even though Glyn Johns says, it's not going to work, I'm telling you, he makes Glyn Johns go across the Atlantic twice to try it again. And that was a vision of how records were going to be made in the future. You know what I mean? That they were... They were hedging their bets in the future. They weren't doing that at the time. You know, Rod Stewart puts out heavy, every picture tells, tells a story. Maggie May wasn't even supposed to be on the album. And then it wasn't even supposed to be a single. You know, it just, these things just happen by accident. What happens when, when you get businesses, businesses, and I, you know, I've worked in businesses, I know, they always think that, you know, lightning can be made to strike twice by, you know, by getting the right elements in the right order and going back and checking what we did before. And that's what happened with records. They got, they got slower. They got more produced. And my point would be that they never quite had the crackle that they had there. You know, there's something about those records. And, and a lot you know, of people are trying me. to regain that sound that they once had. Yes. Then you get the acts. The acts suddenly go, oh, hang on. How long is my career now? How long can I make it last? Nobody was thinking that at the age of no. 27, 28. They thought it could evaporate. It was a permanent now. Yeah. And, you know, my point is, those records, you know, there are people, there probably might be people in this room who are 21 or whatever. Those records live as much now to a 21-year-old as they did to a 21-year-old then. And I don't think that applies to many years. Yeah. You know, we have got in 1967. There's some wonderful records in 1967. But I don't think you go home and put on country music's Electric music for the mind and the country, 
country journal of fish, I'm thinking about. Uh, electric music for the mind and body. Maybe you do, Mark. But, <laughs> I'm going to do it tonight. But people go home and put what's going on on or hunky-dory or, or whatever. You know? you, when you were going to go on the Today programme, they were going to have you in a kind of sound-off against uh, Caroline Sullivan from The Guardian. She's going to do, 90, she's going to do 1984, you're going to do 1971. And I'm really glad it didn't happen, actually, because it would have just been, well, I've got The Who. Well, I've got Haircut 100. You know, well, I've got John Martin. Well, I've got, you know, Humanly. And uh, it's it Smith, exactly. It would have been a blood sport. But you would have finished by making your... I would have been a blood sport, yeah. You would have finished by making your point, which is very good, which is there's only one person can be right. Can't they? Well, it's true. And inevitably, you think it's you. Well... Yeah, yeah. I, people say to me, "Is it subjective?" Because you were twenty-one. Well, no, it's not really. No. You know, I'm not. I don't no, look back no, with this, those records. I don't still look back really... with any nostalgia. In yeah. nineteen seventy-one, it was horrible yeah. in loads of ways. You know, yeah. but that music endures, yeah. and so everybody can write their own subjective book about the year when they were sixteen or twenty-one or whatever. But only one of us can be right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should end it there. Actually, I think we should. Yes. <laughs> This is, it's a really, this is a fantastic book, and it writes about people, and it writes about, not, not, not every book does that. Both Graham's, Graham's does too, actually. They, 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 they write about people, and they write about music in, uh, with the same kind of vigour and the same level of revelation. It's a fantastic book, full of theories, and uh, which you will appropriate and pass off as your own, as I do. <laughs> it's fantastic. Dave's going to sign copies of it uh, directly afterwards. So thanks so much for coming. And thanks Mark Ellen, ladies and gentlemen. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.